You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. Book of Mark, chapter 3. We're continuing our series. If you're uh, new here at City Lights, we're preaching through the book of Mark, really verse by verse. We've chosen to anchor into one book rather than playing Bible roulette. Uh, We have done that in the past. It's fun, but um, I'm kind of a schizophrenic charismatic, so that's a bad combination. Um, So I like to have something that keeps me focused. And so we find ourselves in Mark chapter 3. Uh, Verse 7 through 21, let's read together and then we'll uh, talk for a few moments. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him. For he had healed many So that all that had disease pressed around him to touch him. And whenever he had unclean spirits saw him, whenever they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And verse 12 says, And Jesus strictly ordered them to not make him known. Verse 13, And he went up onto the mountain and called to those them that he wanted. And they came to him, and he appointed the twelve apostles that they might be with him that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. We're going to just skip down because it lists then the 12 apostles. Verse 20, they went home and the crowd gathered again. I want you to take note of that. The crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard this, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. There's two classifications of people I want to talk to you about this morning in recognizing uh, that a world that kind of navigates in matters that are gray, I believe that the scripture shows us that things are far more black and white than we would like to choose. Uh, There's a lot of things in life that you don't have to land. Uh, They're not major decisions. If you wake up in the morning and you decide to wear a blue shirt, um, odds have it that's probably not going to affect your day. Unless you're really sensitive to colors, I'm not quite sure. My grandpa was colorblind, so I find out with red and green, which is really not a good thing when you're driving. But if, you're, if you wake up and you decide, you know, I'm going to wear a blue shirt, that's really not going to affect your life in a major way other than the fact that you enlighten our day with a blue shirt. Now, when you go into college and you choose a career path, now that's a major decision. Now that's setting the course of life. When you choose a spouse, somebody that you're going to be with, that sets up again another massive course of life. But the truth is, most things in our life, we live in a gray world. We live in places that we really don't have to decide what we believe or what we do with our life or what this looks like. But yet, I want to suggest to you that the scripture shows us that although it might not matter what color shirt you wear, our lives cannot live in this gray matter when we're actually talking about faith and spirituality. The scripture tells us a great crowd followed Jesus. Now, if you understand the context of this, I believe that the book of Mark was an eyewitness account most likely from the Apostle Peter that was passed on to him. The book of Mark is the first book of the New Testament that we have. It's the earliest that's dated um, by scholars and theologians. It's the first book from which we understand the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, uh, either borrow from or pull some of their common knowledge from. And in this, it's this, uh, this, this memory of 
uh, an eyewitness account of remembering back. Now, this is not, so you understand, this is not as they're walking with Jesus. It's important to remember this because the book of Mark and the other Gospels are not written as this, like, um, guy that walked around with a notepad and was like, oh, yeah, as this happens, what we understand, there's a phenomenal book. It's pretty thick, but it's by Richard Bachman called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. He talks about that the form of literature that the four Gospels are is primarily eyewitness accounts, that this isn't something that somebody was journaling walking behind them, but this is somebody recounting what happened, most likely because they recognized that as they began to die and pass from this earth, they needed people to be able to remember and look at what Jesus accomplished. That's why we see that the book of Mark uses the word immediately some 40 times. You can imagine Peter sitting down with Mark and he's just kind of remembering all of these things happening and caught up in just the energy of that moment. Last week we talked about, the, actually two weeks ago, the phenomenal healing where Jesus heals the man with the withered hand. Now, we have, in some people in our culture, most of them are quite controversial for good reasons. But if somebody shows up on anywhere, particularly in this first century world, that's kind of primed with uh, supernatural powers, that is so explosive in that environment. When recognizing that at the time that this was written, between the two testaments... They were so looking for a messianic figure, somebody who would fulfill the Old Testament prophets, that when somebody showed up and demonstrated supernatural power, this was explosive. It says a great crowd followed Jesus. Scripture says that they followed him, and finally Jesus is like, I, I need a break. Get me a boat. i got to get out of here. So Jesus then withdraws from this crowd, and then verse 13 says this, and he goes up on a mountain. I want you to see these two classifications of people. On one side, you have a great crowd that follows Jesus. On the other side, you have only 12 that go up on a mountain with him. Um, there's only really two times that I like to run in life. I'm trying to change this for my heart health. Uh, when someone's chasing me, I have to go to the bathroom. That's the only two times I like to run, all right? But my, my wife loves running. Uh, she, like two weeks ago or whatever, it's in the morning. She wakes up and goes for a seven mile run before church. How do you do that? Like a seven mile run has to be the end of the world. And like bombs are blowing up behind me, man. Like, come on. There's no, like, I got a car. I got bikes. Why am I running seven miles? Now you're all into fitness and you're looking at me. You're like, you're going to die young. I might. All right. I love bacon. But listen, the point of it's this. That when you run, I, I, honestly, I really am. I don't know if I'm schizophrenic. I enjoy my personalities. Personality. Sorry. Um, when, when, you, when you engage in, in, in fitness or running or marathon stuff, some of you have run multiple marathons. Um, I can't run because my mind plagues me the whole time. Every time I run, I keep thinking, like, I'm calculating the percentage of, like, all right, I'm 23% done. I'm 24% done. That makes a run a very long time. When you run, though, it amazes me, the people that are into uh, particularly endurance sports, not like checkers or chess. I don't know how that's a sport. Sorry if I offended you, all right? I'm just saying, that's, it's not hard. I do that. <laughs> I never got a pat on the back for that. When, when you engage in long-distance sports, when you engage in something that has a real goal, you recognize very quickly that other people are not going to do it. They're going to stop. And you have to press on intentionally. The scripture says, and Jesus went up on a mountain. It doesn't say it was a hill. 
I'm a big fan of hills. I like, I like a hill. When you walk a mountain, you don't just go, you know what? I'm going to decide to walk a mountain today. That sounds like a good time. I'm just going to go walk. You don't walk a mountain. You climb a mountain. What does that mean? There's a goal. There's a peak. There's a challenge. And there's intentional, conscious effort. Richard Bachman, in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, says this. What's fascinating about the eyewitness accounts of the scripture is that so many people in the New Testament are unnamed. I don't know if you've recognized that even already in our book of Mark up until chapter 3 that we've seen this, that at times Jesus will heal somebody and they'll be named. And other times he'll heal somebody and they're unnamed. For instance, you'll remember uh, blind Bartimaeus. That's just a name that sticks in my head, blind Bartimaeus. Why is Bartimaeus named in the New Testament and yet so many other people that Jesus heals that are blind are unnamed? Why is Jairus' daughter referred to Jairus' daughter, who's, of course, raised from the dead? But why are others not mentioned? Why do we see Simon of Cyrene later on carrying Jesus' cross? Why is he named? But yet so many of the people in the New Testament that Jesus heals are unnamed. The reason for this, Richard Bachman explains, that the most plausible answer to this, and also what we can see from early church history, is that these people that were mentioned and named then became eyewitnesses and testimonies to the accounts of what Christ accomplished. What's fascinating about that is this. There is a huge, unnamed crowd that is following Jesus. Now, we can't speculate. Perhaps some of them may have become disciples of Jesus. But we do know this. Only 12 of them came to Jesus. Only 12 of them ascended that mountain. What I think is interesting about it is this. When we think about faith, what is Christianity? What is spirituality? What is faith? What is this whole thing? What what does it mean to be a Christian? Does it mean that we adhere to a certain code? Does it mean that we sign our name to the Apostles' Creed? Which I would say is is a key part. But is it just that? Does it mean that we follow him, that we have an affinity towards him, that we see him from a distance, and we agree with it, as in uh, opposition to perhaps another religion, as if to be a Christian means that you like Christianity more than other religions. Is that what it means to be a Christian? I would suggest to you this, that to just simply choose Christianity um, kind of as the de facto religion of saying, well, that's just the one I like or the one that I was raised in, that is not to be a Christian. That's not what this means doesn't mean that you're a Christian because you were raised in a quote-unquote Christian home, which I'm not sure how a home can place personal faith in Christ. My home doesn't talk to me. I only hear voices um, on the weekends. So I don't, know how, I, don't know how your, I don't know how your house can place faith in Christ. You were raised in a Christian home. Yeah, your parents could be Christian. They could raise you to be a Christian. But what does that mean? Because your parents can't necessarily raise you to be a Christian. They can point you in the way of Christ. But just because your parents have faith in Christ or your family members or your grandparents have faith in Christ, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily a Christian. Even if you like Jesus, even if you attend church, even if you adhere to the moral principles of Christianity. I've mentioned this before. Um, I run out of stories, so you'll hear this again. A few months ago, we had a guy come to um, our office. He was trying to sell us some sort of advertising package for the church. Wasn't really interested necessarily. And um, it was already a little toasty in here. I guess it was last summer. 
Um, and he came in, he was already sweating. I mean, he was already sweating from the beginning. He had a suit on. It was probably 80 degrees in here. And he was already sweating. And he sat down. He's like, oh, this is great. You know, lovely church and things like that. And I said, thanks, I guess. This isn't really, this is a building. But, and uh, he sat down. And he's like, well, you know, I'm a Christian too. And I said, well, that's great. What does it mean to be a Christian uh, to you? And his sweat became like a fountain. It was, uh, it was unbelievable. I mean, it was like right there, just... And I was just like, you know, and I was thinking right there, he was like, come on, man, be nice. And I was like, no, no, that's fine. Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? And he said, well, you know, obey the golden rule, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, follow, um, you know, follow the Bible's teachings, and, and uh, you know, that's what it means to be a Christian. And, uh, you know, be a good, and then he's like, you know, good, be a good person. That's what, that was really, actually, I don't think he even said follow the Bible's teaching. Love your neighbor yourself and be a good person. I said, well, that's great. I said, that also comprises the, the vast majority of the Muslim population throughout the world. Now his sweat, we both were swimming in it. <laughs> and he's just looking at me going, where's the parachute? And I'm like, I'm not giving it to you. And, but in that moment, I wasn't trying to embarrass him, but what I was trying to show him is this. The danger of Christianity is that we reduce it down to a moral code because that is not fundamentally what Christianity is about. Christianity is fundamentally about the news of what Christ has accomplished, which brings about the implications of how we respond to news. Very different. And I said this to him. I said, other than some radical uh, Muslim terrorists, which there are, the majority of Muslims are actually incredibly moral people, far more moral than we are. Far more moral than we are. And that, if that makes you uncomfortable, repeat it to yourself, all right? It, most Muslims are far more moral than we are, but yet we don't look at them and say they're Christians because to be a Christian is not to adhere to the morals of Christianity alone, alone. But what it is is this, to recognize the historical fact of who Christ is as our Savior primarily, not our teacher. We have to recognize that Jesus did not come in this world to be a teacher. He came to be in this world to be a savior, to rescue us. And in turn, as he rescues us, then he gives us things that we should follow and obey. We have to get those straight, though. The reason is this. Scripture says a great crowd follows Jesus. Now, in that moment, recognizing this as well, that at the time that this was written, or very close to it, there was some... Uh, 12 other messianic figures, and I can give you a very interesting paper if you're interested in reading this. And it's, it's not really long or boring either. The other book kind of is, but I'm just being honest. About 12 other figures that claim to be the Messiah or demonstrate messianic-type qualities in that first-century world that also gathered with them a crowd. The book of Acts actually mentions two of their names. So a great crowd following some charismatic figure is not necessarily a phenomena in that time. If anything, it was actually to be expected. So were you a disciple of Jesus because you believed he was the Messiah because you followed him? No, it tells us very quickly that this group or this crowd did not follow Jesus for Jesus. They followed him. Why? Because they heard he could heal and they wanted to touch him even to the point, I love this, the scripture says, get us in a boat lest they crush him. If that is not religion personified, I don't know what is. If that is not what religion, I'm saying that in juxtaposed to the gospel, I don't don't know what is. Because religion says there's God and if I can 
crush him or control him or do something in my own effort or means, I can get something from him, namely my healing or whatever that is in, in, in your particular situation. And the scripture says a great crowd followed. But what separates the crowd from disciples? What separates people that are just following him from a distance to people that I would suggest are Christians and embody what that is? What is it? We see the difference is that they want to touch him for themselves. A disciple follows him for him. That's it. They see Jesus, as Jesse mentioned this morning, as the great value, the great treasure, as something that is not just a means to an end, but the end in itself. You don't become a Christian. I remember growing up, uh, and, and, and I'm not opposed to these entirely, but there are parts of them that are interesting where maybe today you're sitting here and the reason you're in church is not because you're fascinated by the beauty of Jesus, recognizing that he is the desire of nations, the satisfaction that your soul longs for. Perhaps you're here because you don't want to go to hell. Maybe that's the reason. That's a really poor reason to come to Christ. The reason I want heaven is not because... Um, I'm fair-skinned and I sunburn. That's also, that's also a benefit as well. But that's not the reason I don't want, want to go to hell. The reason I don't want to go to hell is not because it burns and it's long and it hurts. I want to go because... I not go there. I want to go to... I want to be with Jesus. If Jesus is out in, in you know, New Mexico, Lord have mercy, I'll move there. I just had a friend move to New Mexico. And I was like, man, that's got to be God. Why? I mean, if there's a guy from Scranton saying, why are you moving to New Mexico... I'm sorry. If you're from New Mexico, if you're from New Mexico, I apologize. It's probably a beautiful place. I drove through once and was happy to leave. <laughs> I was very happy to leave. I'll visit again temporarily. But growing up, though, you, you, that, that, that's kind of what it is. Is we formulate, watch this, is that we actually, rather than preaching who Jesus is, rather than preaching actually who he is and what it means to be a Christian, we tend to reduce it down to a system of thought that he's not necessarily the person of Jesus is not engaged in. Let me explain. Um, you are eight, and eight years old, seven years old. You go to a vacation Bible school. Again, I'm not opposed to vacation Bible schools. I just am referencing this just for a, a point of thought. You show up, or perhaps maybe a little bit older, you go to a, a play at a church, or you hear some presentation, and they instantly start off with help. And then Jesus becomes the solution to hell. Now, he is, and I want you to follow my train of thought, he is the solution that keeps us away from there. But that is not, we don't preach the gospel saying, turn or burn. Would you like to burn in hell forever or go to heaven? That's not the two options. It's, is Jesus Lord or are you making your own self Lord? It's, it's not heaven or hell. It's Jesus is, in, is Lord, Kurios, actually at that time, the Caesar. Jesus is the supreme Rome, the true Rome, the real Rome, that eternal city that we're looking for. Or, or, or you are your own Lord, your own God. Hell just happens to be the place that you choose to work that place out. Hell happens to be the place where you say, you know what, I'm my own God, and I would rather be in my own place than his place. But yet, the scary part about it is that when we start off with this framework, you either turn or burn. You're sitting here, do you want to spend eternity in hell, or do you want to go to heaven? And you were that little kid that always questioned everything. I want to go to hell. And the teacher's like, no, that's the wrong answer. Let's try again. <laughs> try again, John. Try again, little Johnny. All right. 
heaven or hell. I want to go to hell. No, not get it. And then you realize, because you're that little kid, you just like to be disobedient to the teacher. You got a kick out of it, and you're like, I'm smarter, I'm more witty than they are, right? You're teaching Sunday school, and then maybe later on you're the teacher and you're stuck, and then the parents are like, how was class today? And you're like, your kid wants to go to hell. I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> so the teacher's job then in that moment is what? We, got, well, we can't have the six-year-old kid going, I want to go to hell. Like, we got to understand hell is what? It's hot, it burns, it's bad. And I'm, listen, I'm not arguing those things. What I'm saying is this, that when we recognize that if we start from the wrong reference point in saying hell or heaven, we miss what this whole story is about. And what's the dangerous part about it is that we can agree in concept or theory with the idea. And those things are true and real. I'm not doubting that. But the danger is you can believe in Jesus, believe that you want to go to heaven, you can believe that hell is bad and don't want to go there, and still not be a Christian. Why do I know that? Because the scripture's clear. The book of James says, even the demons know he is God and tremble. We show up at church and we don't even know, we don't even know, like, the song goes on, we're like unmoved. But, but, no, but I believe in this, I believe in Christianity, I believe, you know, I believe Jesus is, you know, I'm not a real big fan of Buddha, I'm not a big fan of some of these other gods, it doesn't make sense, I'm not really a big fan of the violence that portions of their religion uh, tends to show. So I'm going to choose Christianity. The danger in that is that we recognize that we could, could be. And I want to ask you to ask your heart, am I just a person that follows from a distance what I can negotiate and get from God? Or am I a person that recognizes the value, beauty, all-encompassing hope that I long for in Christ? And when he says, follow me, it's not what can I get, but Savior, take all of me. I will climb a mountain. I will follow you. Mountains speak of ascending, challenge spiritual growth. We have to ask our hearts that this morning, and I'm going to close with this. If I get the worship team come forward, preferably on stage, or if you want to stand here, you could, but as we close this morning, as we pray in these next few moments, I, I want you, as much as you can, in a world that's so great, where you really don't have to land a lot of those things, I want to just take a moment in our own hearts and ask Am I following Jesus or am I following a crowd? Am I hearing his voice? Am I following him? Or am I just following a crowd? Jesus says this. It's interesting. In verse 11, it's right between those two passages. And it says those with demons, when they came and saw Christ, they cried out, right? You are the Son of God. And the scripture says, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. That's an interesting thing, isn't that? Why on earth would Jesus, a demon, begins to say, you're the son of God? How many people know that's accurate theology? That's right. <laughs> that's it. They knew more than most of the other people did. The moment a demon goes, you're the son of God. That's a huge claim. And Jesus goes, shh, silent. Why? Most scholars comment on this passage and others that we'll run into later on in the book of Mark by saying this, that Jesus was not looking for people to shout his praise whose lifestyle contradicted his message. It's interesting. He wasn't looking for somebody to shout his praise and say, you're the son of God, but yet I don't align my life. Why? Because that was a mockery to Jesus to see a demon saying, you're the son of God, while the demon is harassing and hurting and tormenting the person who was at that time demonized. 
Jesus is asking us that same, that same question asked us when we, when we cry out, you are the son of God. Is, is Jesus saying to us, you know what? I'd rather not have you yell that. <laughs> I'd rather, listen, I'm not talking about behavioral management. What I'm saying is this. Is Jesus saying, you know what? I'd rather not have you just have an intellectual knowledge of this just an intellectual knowledge and let it transform your life. Why? Because if we recognize, this is just simple, if we recognize that he is the son of God, the, the son of God, this is God incarnate, God in flesh, the only true God. If we believe that, there's implications into our lives directly. Jesus is asking us when we say that, would he strictly order us to stop? And I'm not talking about because, because of your behavior, I try to stress this constantly. Behavior is absolutely a manifestation of belief. You can change behaviors and still, and still have a, a belief system that's totally wrong. Um, that's why you can be addicted to one thing. You stop that addiction and you go find it in something else. The problem is not the addiction. The problem is inside. Belief and behavior. We've got we to address one before the other. Would Jesus order us, stop saying you're the son of God? Why? Because it's right theology. Because it hasn't sunk into our hearts to the point where we recognize that to be a Christian is not to adhere mentally alone, not to assent to some test that I sign off on, but that test has to somehow impact me in a deep way in which I live. So that I know God, not just merely intellectually, but my mind fuels my heart. That's Christianity. I, it's not that Christianity disposes of the mind, not at all. Christianity actually uh, opens the mind, enthuses the mind. But where the mind serves the heart, not, not, it's this kind of cycle. I learn about Jesus and then that transforms my heart. And the more my heart's transformed, the more it goes to my mind, the more I want to learn. It's this engine, this cycle. It's not something that gets locked in my brain and then I sit back and go, you're the son of God. I agree with that other than other religions. That's not the way that works. John chapter 17, verse 3 says this, and this is eternal life that you might know the Father and Jesus, his only true Son who he sent. Eternal life, salvation, Christianity, is not saying, I agree with Jesus. It is to say, you are my Lord. One last thought here. I apologize stringing it on. Doesn't that music make you just want to groove a little bit though? Alright. I can't say I'm not schizophrenic, but I'm entertaining. So, to myself, I don't know about to you. Apologize. Alright. One last thought. When, G- when Romans says this, if you believe in your heart, the book of Romans says, and if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart and confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. Now, A salvation prayer is not referenced in the scripture as in recite a quick little thing and everything's better. We can reduce it to that, and I don't doubt that the Lord could use that means. But the book of Romans, remember where it was written to? Romans. The word Lord, kurios. Jesus is Lord. He's kurios. That was a title that was given to Caesar at that time that that was written. When Paul was writing this, He was showing this Roman church that their faith came into direct confrontation with everything around them. That when you say Jesus is Lord, it wasn't something that you just said, yeah, I'm okay with that. 
you were saying Jesus is everything, even to the point where we see later on in the first century that when Rome began to persecute Christians, that the reason they were persecuted was not because of their faith, because Rome was very pluralistic and had so many different gods, but the reason they, they were persecuted was that Christianity was saying Jesus is the only God. It wasn't because they were saying, I believe in Jesus. You actually see a lot of uh, early religions that merge him, but what you see is that when he said Jesus is Lord, with the phrase Jesus is Lord, what we're saying is, you're my Savior, you control my life, I don't control you. Let's stand together this morning.